Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. We're lucky enough to be joined this week by Jana Boboskova, the founder and CEO of Epic Brands, the health and beauty venture studio based in California. Jana has a fascinating background, describing herself as being Czech by birth, but global by choice. She's lived and worked in Europe, the UK and the US and has studied areas as diverse as EU financial markets, monetary policy, theology and religious studies. Her honours thesis was entitled The South Korean Economic Miracle and the Spirit of Protestantism. These days, Yana is focused on driving high-growth, tech-enabled consumer brands with multi-platform revenue, relevance, innovation and impact. She really is epic. Yana, it's amazing to meet you and you're based in Santa Monica in California. One of the things I love about your tagline is that you say that you're Czech by birth but you're global by choice. Tell us a bit about what it was like growing up in the Czech Republic. Yes, so I'm calling in from Santa Monica. I always tell everybody that the short version of my story is that I'm living the American dream. I was born and raised in Prague in the Czech Republic um, in the 90s, not to age myself too much. Uh, I've always noticed growing up that there's a huge difference in the world that I see around myself in the post-Soviet Czech Republic and in the world that I saw on TV. And my biggest question was, why is, why is it so much prettier on the other side? And so I grew up with this idea that uh, everything west of the Czech Republic is just better. And I dedicated a lot of my time even as a teenager working, which is very unusual at the time in the Czech Republic. I worked since, I don't know if I can say here, but I think I'm pretty sure it was illegal at the time. I was paid cash under the table and I was working in a store and wanting to work my way outside into the bigger world. And learning languages always from an earlier age because I was very very aware growing up in a country that's relatively small geographically that you're kind of behind the rest of the world until you continuously learn new things and do new things. So I remember the day I got my driver's license, I drove to Germany for dinner and my friends thought it was crazy, but I was like, well, it's hour and a half away. What else are you going to do with hour and a half? Do you have better plans? And so I always was striving to sort of see what's out there and do the be- do better and do best. And perhaps that's why my company is now called Epic Brands. And <laughs> we say epic or nothing. And I think that's sort of amusing that I had from early on. One of the things that's amazing is it seems like you have just put out tendrils into all sorts of different parts of the world, not just geographically, but all sorts of different ideas. And I was fascinated by what you studied at uni. Can you tell us a little bit about what your studies were and particularly about your honours thesis? Sure. So I 
do have a degree in theology and business, <laughs> and it was a very rare combination to find. And I think I was always interested in why people do and why they feel that they need to achieve or purchase or experience certain things. And historically, actually, theology was, until the Enlightenment, sort of the mother of all sciences. And so I think it's a very valid lens through which the Western knowledge has been organized historically. And then I'm interested in the modern expressions of that as well. So, I mean, not to be too LA, but <laughs> I think the mo modern expressions of spirituality and how people connect with their mental states and with, with what's happening in the world, uh, I want to take a bit more of a rigorous approach. I also felt that the stories in the history and in today get sometimes convoluted with how they're translated and interpreted. And so looking at studying the history in other languages, which is actually a huge part of theology, was very interesting to me. And then I always like to get things done. So business was something that I knew was inevitable for me from relatively early age. So business was just sort of a natural add-on. And I mean, not to be too cocky, but I think I breezed through the business part of the degree uh, pretty easily. <laughs> And then there was a South Korean overlay in all of that too, right? Yes. So building on everything that I just said, I came across Max Weber's theory about Protestantism and capitalism. I was already immersed in this, uh, hopefully that's not controversial for your audience, but the beauty of capitalism uh, and, and the variety and the opportunities that it brings. And um, I was looking at the success of the Southeast Asian countries, and I noticed that there's a huge correlation between the rise of Protestantism and the economic strength of South Korea. So I got the opportunity, I got a grant from British Council and I and I lived in Presbyterian Seminary and with theologians, but I was actually studying the economics and the sort of Christian leadership and Christian values that have taken place in the 60s and 70s in Korea. And it, it was fascinating. And, and yeah, I mean, I hope I get, I hope I'm so successful that I can get back to these studies again very, very soon. <laughs> What I love about your story is it feels like where you are now is sort of a conscious choice. Like you haven't just been dragged along. It feels like you've made the sort of conscious embrace of things that are meaningful and relevant to you. Is that is that how you feel? You know what? It isn't. And I think that particularly if this audience that's listening to this are entrepreneurs, I think it's important to share that the journey to where I am today has been at times painful and very challenging. I finally got my master's in development economics, which I loved. And I worked uh, with some of the smartest people around the world. And if any of my classmates are listening, I love you and adore you. And you're the smartest. And then what happened is that I got myself into the beauty industry. And that's something that's an industry that I'm in today. Uh, my business services consumer brands and biotech brands and and we invest in them and we operate them and we run them and we're very successful doing that but if you told me that this would be my career 10 years ago I would have never believed you now the upside of my career is that I am living the American dream and that's something I've wanted to this this lifestyle and this entrepreneurial build mode is what I've wanted since I was very early on but I never in my life had imagined it would be in beauty I was on a journey to write a PhD thesis about pricing of public goods in Israel when beauty category happened to me. And what may be endearing, particularly to Australian listeners, is that actually my foray into the beauty category was in summer tanning. 
And I came across an incredible Irish founder that had organic sunless tan, luxury organic sunless tan, which now sounds endearing, but at the time was a very serious topic. And I went and I went from the sort of ivory towers of working with the smartest economists in the world to spray tanning people in the Czech Republic. And I went door by door. And until this day, I think the first 60 salons that I sold spray tanning to are... I still have their phone number and get invited to their dog's birthday parties. It was a very humbling process. And oftentimes I wondered, am I on the right track? Am I on the right track? And and eventually I worked so hard and I, t- I, I would say we're tanning the world one arm at a time. That was my motto. <laughs> and it's like one, one day I'm going to start tanning in the Western countries as I always wanted. And that's what happened. So I supported that company with their European launches, and then I was lucky enough to help them with their launch in, in America eight years ago and grow, and that business is now sold and has been very successful, and we've been doing that since. But if somebody told me that it would be by tanning naked people in the Czech Republic, I, I would have never believed that. And it certainly did not feel like I was on the right track at the time. And so just in terms of then that capacity to make the choice to step out from working for someone else to build your own company... Where did the motivation and confidence to do that come from? I think confidence would be an, an exaggeration at the time that I was doing it. I knew I had to leave the role that I was in. I it coincided with my green card. I was getting quite comfortable having a senior leadership role in, in companies. But I knew that in my hearts of hearts, I knew that I need to at least go and try and do big things. And if I feel that's fine and then I can go back to having some kind of a job, I just knew I had to do it. It was utterly uncomfortable and totally scary. It continues to be that way at times. <laughs> but also I think that level of self-honesty, that that's just something you have to do, it makes it an inevitable choice minute by minute, day by day, and now year by year. So <laughs> definitely was internally driven, externally supported, but not easy. And can you tell us about Epic? You've got this fabulous Venn diagram that sort of has Epic in the middle and and sort of the the constellation of of things that build into Epic. You've sort of alluded to what you do, but I would love to hear more about not only where you are today, but what your vision is for the future. Sure. So I started Epic on the back round of me having run companies that were going from 100,000 or $2 million in revenue onto 30 or $40 million in revenue very fast. And so those companies, interestingly now, for either Australian or European, and that means that relative to the U.S. market where they were growing, they were relatively undercapitalized. So here in the U.S., there is a sense of a playbook of some of the KPI and milestones that you should hit if you want to have a certain valuation and certain perception of the success of the business. And, and it's an expensive market to do business with. It's got tremendous opportunities and and all of that stuff. But to grow fast and grow well, uh, I think that it's really difficult for, for Australian and or uh, European businesses to understand what it really takes in a market of the size of the U.S. And so I've had that experience. And so I thought, okay, now I have this experience and I'm going to tell all the brands that I think should be epic, the brands that really make the sustainable, the the biotech things for the future, they make them available to consumers. Those are the brands I'm going to impart my growth knowledge on. And I got my first customers very quickly. There were companies that wanted to hire me. I say, I can't work for you full time, but I just started this company. It's called Epic. You can hire me through the company. And we started bringing millions of dollars of revenue to these early stage companies. And then I saw how they were processing these opportunities and I saw their supply chain and their operations and I realized, oh my God, what have I done? 
were bringing these opportunities to companies. And even though I thought I did my due diligence on their back end, I realized that some of those companies were not profitable in doing this business. And there was not a clear path to how they were ever going to be profitable unless their supply chain was going to be completely changed, et cetera. And so I said, never again will I represent a brand in, in growth where I don't control the operations and have a good understanding of the working capital and, and all of the back-end stuff. And that's when Epic became an operating company. Today, we are an operating partner to a number of brands that collectively have done over $100 million in their first three years of business, which is amazing. It's epic. <laughs> and our thesis around what sustains an Epic brand is a cross-section of innovation and creation of IP and multi-platform revenue. Then it boils down to a lot of terrific execution on the marketing side and front-end and customer acquisition, but really referring back to the Venn diagram, it's, it's value creation that moves the world towards a smarter place from a place of technology, sustainability, life sciences, and consumer adoption. And so we're really obsessed with these values or these eras and, and thinking how can we connect them in a way that serves people the most and how can we make them epic brands. And there's a part of our business where we do that as a service of others and there's a service to other brands and then there's part of our business where we originate and invest in brands. And so would you call yourself a, a specialist venture firm? I think that every category of business has a different word for us. Uh, my friend gave me recently, a very successful tech entrepreneur friend gave me the advice, if you want to talk to us tech people, just tell them that you have a venture studio. I'm like, okay, we're a venture studio. So in the tech language, we're a venture studio. And I think in the in the consumer sense, uh, operating partner is a, is a really honest description of what we do day in, day out as a team. And uh, as you said, even, you know, from the first day you sort of hung out your shingle, there was a line of people wanting to work with you. How do you filter for those brands that you think are the right fit for the sort of work that you do and that you want to, as you say, align your own brand with? It's really hard. Uh, we do see five or 10 brands every day. And I have massive empathy for any founder that has got out there to try and go make that happen. So I've, I've always found that challenging, but I also knew having an epic brand, not every brand is epic. It's And, and oftentimes I tell people you have, a, you have a healthy business, you have a great cash flow generating business, but unless you want to look into innovation, unless you want to look into sustainability, unless you want to rethink your business model, it's not epic. So it's great. It's not epic. <laughs> and so we do we do stick to the parameters that I described earlier around sustainability, multi-channel revenue, innovation, typically from life sciences or sort of biotech intersection. And we look at brands that perhaps don't have that today, but want to get there. And then we want to work with them on their journey to to become epic. Can you give us a couple of examples that really, in your mind, are brands that, you know, really are epic and that, that you think are shiny examples of, of what you think of when you think about a successful business in the categories that you work in? Yeah, so I, I will borrow from some of our early clients. So Seed and Our Cats, a huge admirer of their work. And I always say that they're, they're the spokesperson for microbiome. And I think that the work that they do on the intersection of communicating true science and generating new IP in a category that serves customers in a way that's communicated to the highest standard of science, but as well digestible and engaging. I think that's a shining example of a brand that we've been so proud to support. Thinking also about some of the work that we've done with the founding team at OneSkin. So they're early on in their business, but I think 
I've known the team for about three years before we start working together or two years before we started working together. It's a team of female PhD scientists from, from Brazil that fearlessly, fearlessly came from San Francisco to commercialize their interpretation of senolytics and aging and, and created a proprietary peptide, which has far-reaching implications for therapeutics and for our health and for how it can help reverse signs of aging and therefore prevent diseases in any tissue in our body. So being their launch partner, for the consumer category has been really meaningful to, I think, us both as humans, because we feel like we're moving moving the world in the right direction, but also obviously very impactful commercially. So really excited about those brands. I think, interestingly, the two brands that I mentioned, what they have in common, they're incredibly successful subscription-run businesses, which is sort of the key word of the venture uh, space here in America and as far as consumerism go. But I think that their success in, in very high digit stick rates is is a testament sort of to the moving market into more honest representation of life sciences, innovation, and, and how we want to consume the things that we put in on or on our bodies. And I'm really interested in that sort of sustainability piece and the reimagining of what's important for consumers. And your assessment of the sort of values that the founders themselves have as people and then how important that is as it's sort of transmitted through the brand. Look, I think the the founder values are critical and then they really seep whether whether the founders are aware of their values or not. <laughs> the, the spoken and unspoken values are equally important and I think they're felt throughout the organization. So it's it's critically important. I think that our biggest lesson as as an operating partner of somebody that makes sustainability dreams come true is that there is a 1.0, 2.0 and 3.0 of sustainable consumer brands and, and we're, we're huge supporters of of doing that and doing that transparently I mean oftentimes in the personal care category which is 80 90 percent reliant on water-based formulas putting a water-based formula in something that's sustainable I mean it's it's almost an oxymoron <laughs> so I think it requires a level of knowledge as well as long-term commitment to to phasing this out in a way that can make you both commercially successful and move the world to a really better place. What we see often is that once people go into the sustainability rabbit hole, the way that it is presented in the web, it can be a little bit paralyzing because they realize it's really hard. And sort of our advice to moving through that is to be very candid with your customers, with your audience about why you're doing what you're doing initially and what you're working towards. Because what that also does is it, it unlocks the supply chain innovation at every stage. I think if we're all paralyzed working through towards the ultimate solution and don't do anything in the meantime, it's actually harder to innovate that way. So that all being said, I think we're living an incredible time. And, and I think that the, from a consumer space the things that we buy and the things that we use will look very different in the next 20 years. And we're really excited about that. Is there a limit to the sort of companies you'll work with or even if it was something outside the consumer space, like a services business, would you help them build a brand if you thought it had the right characteristics? You know what? There is no limit technically. And I can tell you right now we're working in a stealth mode. Uh, I would say concept for breath and ice bath. Thing that's very much in a mental space and it's a multi-platform concept from a consumption perspective. We're working with 
multi-billion dollar companies on the turnaround and innovation and how they think about how they want to show up in an epic way to the modern consumers. And then we're working with a lot of early stage founders. So it's a very, we've actually very little stuff in the middle. So we have the really, really big guys coming to us and saying, what you did was really epic. Can we have that too? And then we have a lot of, I mean, innovation does happen typically in smaller pockets. So then we're working with a lot of early stage entrepreneurs as well. What's the most challenging part of the work that you do? So as an operating partner to companies where we don't have majority shareholding, I think the biggest challenge there is alignment on cadence and speed of execution. So we're operators. And I think I was just talking with one of our friend investors this morning. And I said, you know, it's, it's bizarre to me that we as an, as an external partner are the one that are the drivers of speed. And I think one thing that we see is because we're so lucky to work across many businesses is we have a very keen understanding of time is money. And I think that that sense of urgency in the consumer space on the early stage is, re is really lacking. And we find it difficult to navigate from what we can do and how we like to work and how we like to get things to the market. And our business model is aligned to the growth and success of our companies. So we want to grow really fast. And I think that fast isn't cool anymore for a lot of the early stage entrepreneurs. And I find that I, I, I don't know how to reconcile it with, the, with my own cultural values, because to me, time is money and and I, I could die tomorrow, so let's do it now. <laughs> but, but I seem to be very uncool with these sensibilities. So, so that's definitely a challenge on, this, on, on the operating side. And that's our current experience, mostly with the U.S. brands. Again, I, I don't want to overgeneralize. And then on the Epic brand side, where we invest and create things, I mean, honestly, we, we have too much to do. I think that's our biggest challenge is we're, <laughs> we're excited with all the things that we're building and, and, and really excited to start sharing them with the world next year. And um, yeah doing too many epic things is, is the other challenge. Prioritization, time management. If an Australian, a great Australian company wanted to work with you, what would your counsel be in terms of them thinking about wanting to launch into a big market like the US? Yes. Yeah, so we have a process. Uh, we have a three-step process when we engage any brand. And I think it's particularly useful for foreign brands looking at the US. The first part is called growth assessment. And it's a deep dive into their current business, into unit economics, supply chain, their current sales, the current trends, the current audience. And then we sort of Venn diagram that over where we see that subcategory in the US and look for both long-term strategy and early wins. And then we build a business plan that we can all agree on. And that business plan is a reflection of the working capital access or financing needs of the existing inventory of sort of the positioning that was underwritten by any existing investors and what is it that we're trying to build. And we try and do it as fast, as profitable and as epic as we can. And do you think there's a cultural challenge sometimes for especially Australian entrepreneurs who feel like the US is very familiar because we get a lot of content from the US, but then actually when they're on the ground, it's different enough to be a little bit disconcerting? Is that something that you help entrepreneurs from outside the US understand? 100%. And, you know, I can give you, this is an example from a conversation we had this week around a launch of, a, of an Australian brand in the US, actually. And we were talking about press samples and we talked about this entire gifting strategy. And in, the, in this Australian brand's budget, there was 50 of everything. And we kind of look at that and we're like, well, that, that won't really work. We need like 500 of everything. 
<laughs> and when we transposed sort of the scale of everything we needed to do just in the marketing piece, the model no longer worked. <laughs> and so, and so I think that this just from a scale perspective, I think the amount and, and, and that applies to other ARS as well. I think this is a very sort of a quantified example that I can give, but I think the sheer amount of intensity and, and the amount of sales channels, the amount of people and the amount of engagement you have to generate to move the needle here is much bigger. I'm lucky enough to have done a lot of business in the consumer space in Australia. And I love that market because, I mean, look, doing business anywhere isn't easy, but it is a relatively consolidated space where you pick a strategy, you know, the players, and then you drive them hard. U.S. is a, is a much more dynamic space with many more layers to the business and with with much bigger order of magnitude of the effort that you need to put in to, to make a mark. And I think that, to your point, perhaps the English language makes it look like it's too familiar, but I think quantifiably it, it is different. It's very different. And I think that we can actually save brands a lot of time and a lot of money telling them early what it should look like and then staging their growth in a way that's appropriate to where their business is. One of the things that seems to be a challenge, particularly at the moment, but I think it's always been a challenge for high growth businesses, is to attract talent. You know, you can often have a really talented founder, but how do you surround them with really good talent? Any advice from your experience running your own business or other brands you've seen that talent management piece done well? Well, I mean, I guess I can add two things. One is a shameless plug of Epic because it's one of the things that we solve for. And that is that you don't have to hire a group of consultants and full-time people early on. We can really be your operating muscle when you come into the U.S. And it's a one-stop shop for execution, allowing the, the core team to focus on growth and marketing where we can offer a lot of guidance as well. But really, we take masses of off the plate and typically substitute at launch between three and five hires right out of the gate. The other part of my answer is that here in the U.S. hiring right now is very hard. The market has changed completely post-COVID and what we see the top talent being attracted to now more than ever is really the company culture. It's the company values, sort of the alignment with the core product and the mission and then the individual being able to make a mark on that. And I think that makes it really hard for foreign companies that have perhaps strong founders and they have a way of doing things. And and I think finding sort of a plug and play a senior leadership for that in the U.S. may be a little bit more challenging right now because senior leadership in the USA will want to leave their own mark. So again, I would I think I would encourage anybody that's looking to come into the U.S. to really think about how their brand looks and feels like in the U.S. And perhaps it's a little bit different, but perhaps that can attract talent and growth that you may not be able to get if you're too rigid about sort of replicating what has happened and how the brand rep- is represented in Australia. Staying on that people piece, the other part of being a founder is having great mentors and great sounding boards. Are there people in your life who've been really instrumental in, in helping you get to where you are? hundred percent. So I do, I have turned my top advisor into my business partner two years ago, and it's been the fastest growing two years of my business. And it's been the most fun two years of my business. So I certainly encourage everybody out there and trust me, I, this is coming from the, I want to do this alone and independently girl. It's better to do it with somebody that can really support you. 
You, so your advisor was someone that, so what sort of advisor were they? It's somebody that has done it before. And I think that would be my number one advice. It's to, to surround yourself with somebody that has earned it, has lost it, has earned it again, and has seen the ins and outs of building any business. And I feel very lucky to have a business partner like that. And I think one of the best advice that, that he gives me, even in the hardest of the moments, is be more you. And I think to surround yourself by people that can give you rigorous business advice and counsel on anything from legal to pricing to whatever it is that are technical enough to understand the complexity of a transaction to really being and having your back fully and trusting that you are the person with the talent you're going to make it through be more you even if it costs you sometimes. Uh, I think that that has been the single most encouraging and empowering thing to have and it helped me grow faster, make better decisions and be better for the businesses that we have as well. I love that reference to work with people who've had the experience of had it, lost it, got it back. You've earlier suggested that parts of your experience have been painful. Are there any particular stories you can share with us about really difficult times or setbacks that that have been formative for you and that you've really learned from? Well, without implicating anybody on this podcast, I think that the sort of the theme of these moments is is to just be aware that, you know, not everybody are who they say they are. And so to operate from a space where you can trust, but you can verify and you can be very collaborative, but also be able to survive if the collaboration is not reciprocated and build your business like that. I think that's sort of the key takeaway is just to trust and verify at the same time. You seem like a an incredible learner. You know, you've got the academic background, but it just seems like you've had that capability to just master an incredible range of things. Where do you learn from? Wow. Uh, I, I'd like to say everywhere, but I don't want to give myself too much credit. <laughs> look, I mean, we do work, even if I look at our businesses today, with material engineers, with scientists across a number of disciplines, one of the companies that we represented in their consumer uh, expression is about to IPO their delivery system next year. I feel incredibly lucky to be surrounded by by really cerebral-based companies. And I think it's a two-way street. I love it. And and we execute for them. And so they love us back. <laughs> and so I, I definitely, it definitely comes mostly from, from the business environment. It looks from, it comes from looking at the world around me and really diving in on how things work and how are they priced and, and thinking about how that's going to change over time. And also oftentimes to draw on a personal experience, it comes from how you can help other people. And I think, you know, looking at in my own family, some scenarios of people getting very sick and you have to figure out, okay, so traditionally there's only a really bad answer. I don't like the answer that the world is giving me on this, but I care so much that that's not an answer that I'm willing to accept. And so you dig your heels in in any discipline that you can to help someone. And I think that that is also a very powerful and motivating source for innovation and learning. And what about books and podcasts that you would recommend to people? So I have one podcast that I have been recommending. Hopefully this can become the second one. <laughs> but the one podcast that I listen to religiously is all in. I really think it's an incredible take on people that have done it. They've done it, they've lost it, and now they have some strong opinions and and they earn the right to have their strong opinions. So I love to listen to them. And um, yeah, you know, to your point about 
being more you, that's a group of people that feel very comfortable being completely them. You know, I love the frankness and, you know, the, the disagreements that they have. It's great. Yeah. And then one book that I recommend a lot to entrepreneurs is a book that it's one of the few books I ever returned to. It's Ben Horowitz, The Hard Things About Hard Things. And I read it for the first time right about when I first, I like to say, was fresh of the boat in America. And uh, at the time, I thought the business was incredible struggle and I felt like a failure because business was hard. What that book has done for me is to, it made me realize that business being hard is part of being business. It's normal. So it, it sort of decoupled my emotional state from the commercial state. And I think it actually made me a, a far better business person because it helped me understand the mental state and the fact that difficult situations are normal. And so if you're going to be an entrepreneur, this is your life for the rest of your life and you just need to become better at it. So yeah, hard things about hard things. Favorite book. I'm fascinated to sort of link back to that you live the American dream. You know, you grew up in a very different environment and that when you were growing up, you felt like everything was more beautiful somewhere else. You know, given that, you know, Prague is recognized as one of the most beautiful cities in the world, how do you feel about that now, having had this global experience reflecting back on where you've come from? Look, Prague is one of the most beautiful places around the world. Nothing that makes Prague beautiful or one of the most beautiful places around the world has been built in the last 100 years. (laughs) And so I think that my sensibility around being somewhere, quote unquote, better is is to be somewhere where new things are conceived, new things are built. There's incredible opportunity. There's access to variety and access to variety of thought. And I think, you know, any smaller town is massively disadvantaged in access to these things. So not to sound too discriminatory to my part of the world, I'm very proud to be from the Czech Republic and, and love going back and, and certainly feel very privileged to have the ability to, to have a more international lifestyle. We were talking before we started recording about the sort of energy of entrepreneurship and, you know, people in your universe that have had that courage to step out and start something new. What would be your advice to people who are thinking that they, they want to be an entrepreneur or they already have started a business and they're thinking about taking on external capital? Do it. <laughs> get started. I mean, and don't get discouraged when it's hard. I think that it really is rarely a straight line. Uh, the example that I shared before we started recording was a very straight line, and I admire that. It was my friend from McKinsey that reached out to me about two months ago saying, I'm thinking about starting your business. What do you think? And, you know, there's a lot of noise when you announce this intention to start a new business. I think listen but discern which ones you're going to listen to. And I'd say only listen to one to the ones that have done it. I think that is the key <laughs> advice. And then go and try and be prepared that it will likely not be a straight line and be iterative, be committed. Don't be too stubborn. I think that's an advice that I should take for myself (laughs) as well. Be flexible on how you're going to get to your big idea because the world changes and moves incredibly fast and you may be able to find partners and or investors that can align to you faster because of who you are and your your work ethic, your your commitment, if you're a little bit flexible about what what the next steps in reaching your big ideas are. So I think that, and that's actually one of the things that we see very often and I'm guilty of sometimes myself that I'm too stubborn on step one, two, three, that that step four becomes much harder. Whereas if I had a little bit more flexibility about how to get there, I could get there faster. So perseverance and surround yourself by the right, right people, meaning people that have been in the, in the weeds before. 
you mentioned before that there's just so many amazing things that you could be working on. How do you fit it all in and what recommendations do you have for other people to be productive but also sort of be healthy and strong? I really don't think I'm the best person to take advice on this. I am a self-proclaimed workaholic. Yeah, I work all the time and I often joke that I'm making hard work cool again. (laughs) I'm learning. I'm learning. So I do think it's important to find, and this is something I learned from my mentor, is to schedule time for yourself and schedule time to think. It wasn't obvious to me when I started my own business that I'm allowed to do that. There's so many moving parts that, you know, it's very easy to become in a reactive mode. And and one day you look over your shoulder and you're so far down the reactive mode that they kind of lost touch with sort of the bigger whys. So I think that daily scheduling time to think, and if it means going for a walk for half an hour or go and, and really just thinking about everything and making sure that it's sort of how you're spending the rest of your days ties back into your long-term vision is really important. And I, I've started to discipline myself to do that. And I'm already seeing incredible fruits of that labor. <laughs> and, and then I think, you know, and, and this is going to be a funny one coming from me, but physical exercise, I do, I am learning particularly with age that the physical and mental states are aligned and it's, it's really hard, particularly when you're trying to perform at a peak level to be out of whack physically and, and perform well mentally. So I think scheduling times for whatever physical activity means to you and scheduling time to think are actually incredibly important things. You work with some fabulous science-based companies that are focused on health and longevity. Any particular products that you sort of use and, and make a difference to your health? You know, I just started using Whoop. You can probably see it on my arm. I've tried all of the same. We continue to try all of the home diagnostic things because of the nature of our business. But I do think that establishing a metric baseline for areas of your life where science now allows us to do it, which by the way is not many, it's not only playful, but it, it is informative and, it, and it's meaningful. So I definitely highlight Whoop just as something. I don't know if it's available in Australia. but Yeah, yeah, it is. It's po- really popular. Yeah. yeah. So so Whoop is something that um, I think is a type of a product that can sort of spice up how you think about taking care of yourself because it can help you sort of track it in a, in a novel way and connect you with others that do that as well. Yeah, and motivate yourself. Competing against yourself all the time, really, given that you're quantifying your sort of biometric information. So last question, when you look forward into the future, what are you really optimistic and excited about? Look, I think this is an incredible time to be alive. I feel so lucky to be living in this era. The pace of innovation and the speed with which our lives can become better is unprecedented. And I'm extremely hopeful for what we can achieve for our lives through the advances in in science and medicine, but also through entrepreneurship that will make these advances accessible to us. And so I really just would urge everybody to put their foot on the gas, not brake at any given time of their lives and make the best lives for themselves because this is the best time to have done it in the history of time. Uh, Well, your energy is so infectious and I know it's afternoon for you, but it's morning for me. So this is an awesome way to start my day and I'm so grateful for you spending the time. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to share the epic journey. We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did and are fired up to take your startup journey to the next level. As an investment network founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive like Scale Investors. We believe education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, 
an education platform with online courses for both founders and investors. If you're a woman founder, Scale has two education programs, Scale Founded, a five-day short course combining one-hour live webinar sessions delivered by experienced investors and founders, access to an online education platform, and the opportunity to network with trailblazing women entrepreneurs. Scale Founded is launching in February 2022. The other exciting program is Scale Empowered, a 10-week facilitated series, an opportunity to put your learnings into the context of your own startup with a cohort of incredible women entrepreneurs by your side. You can find all of the information and register on our website, www.scaleinvestors.com.au.